Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 222. Yes, that's a palindrome. I always love palindromes. Anyway, I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is, well, uh, it's just me today. Valerie is off, but she'll be back next week, she assures me. Meanwhile, on today's show, I'm going to be answering questions about whether Skin Dupes AI is a reliable way to pick your skincare products, whether you can combine vitamin C and niacinamide, whether blue light serums provide any extra benefit, and whether it is worth it to grow your own plant extracts for skincare. Actually, I've got a ton more questions I'm going to answer in a rapid-fire way, because I'm here by myself. And I'm also going to cover a couple of beauty industry stories that I just thought were interesting. Before that, uh, I'll just talk to you about something that's been on my mind. There are these hosts of questions that I often have. I'm, I'm sort of a curious type, and, and I imagine a lot of you are too. And often when I want to find out the answer to something, I will simply go to Google or uh, DuckDuckGo, if you prefer the uh, more private search. But I'll just go to an internet search engine, and I'll look up the answer for that. But sometimes I get a question that I just can't find the answer to. And here are two examples. So if you have the answer to these, please let me know. So one is there's the behavior of squirrels where a squirrel will run up a tree, but if it sees you coming, it sort of runs to the back of the tree. I remember once reading that that behavior had a specific word attached to that behavior, but I, for the life of me, I cannot find out what that word is. So if you know squirrel behaviorists out there, what would that behavior be called where the squirrel shimmies around to the back of a, a tree trunk so that you as a person cannot see them? Another question that has plagued me more recently is I have this mulberry tree in my backyard and it, right now it's shedding all of these little, well, they look like mulberry plants, but they're just like these fluffy little, I don't know, cone-shaped kind of things. They're not fruits, but they're not seeds either. I just wonder, does anybody know what these things are? I looked it up on Google. My Google, my Google powers were just not up to the task because I, I do not know what are these mulberry things that are being shed today in my yard, which I have to clean up. Uh, well, this gives me something to do. Although I also have this maple tree where it's shedding all of these green helicopters. And I wonder, why is it shedding all these helicopters? These can't possibly all be uh, seeds because it does that in the it does that in the, uh, the fall. Anyway, these are the things that keep me up at night, but they're not the reason that you turn into the show. So let's get on with the beauty science news. <laughs> The first thing that I saw, which was interesting, is a report out of the magazine Cosmetics and Toiletries. Now, this is actually one of the most widely read and best sources for cosmetic industry insiders. They are reporting on a survey conducted by the company that makes CeraVe. Uh, apparently, CeraVe looked at people's attitudes about sunscreens and why or why they might not use them. I should say up front that it is a good practice to wear sunscreen every day and actually is proven to have benefits both with stopping the negative skin aging effects of the sun and also protecting you from the development of skin cancer. So if you're going outside, please wear sunscreen. 
But anyway, looking at this survey, they asked people, why do they not wear sunscreen? What's preventing them? And it turns out uh, the main reason is because people don't like how it feels. Um, some people also avoid it because they think it causes acne. Other people think they don't like the white cast that it leaves on the skin. And this is going to happen with the sunscreens like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. Also, people don't use it because they don't want to mess up their makeup. And they don't think they need it because they aren't going to be in the sun too long. Now, honestly, I can relate to a few of these. But you really should wear sunscreen every time you go out. Of course, you know, like I said, I am a bit of a hypocrite when it comes to this advice because I don't always follow it, honestly. My reasons for not wearing sunscreen for when I go outside, uh, you know, first of all, number one reason why I don't or I'll forget to wear sunscreen is that I just don't think about it. It really, it just doesn't occur to me all the time. And if it's not sunny out, I won't think of it. And even if it is sunny out, I, I still, it's just not top of mind for me. So that's kind of my excuse there. I also don't see any immediate obvious benefit. I mean, it does, it is a bit of a lot of work for me. I don't use a lot of products anyway. So this is like a lot of work just to go outside for a run. And plus, I already cover up my skin when I go running. So, you know, and I, I always wear a hat, too, with a brim. So my face is generally always covered you know, with shade anyway. So pretty much just my arms exposed. And, you know, honestly, they could look a bit better, you know. Uh, but, you know, they're fine enough looking for me. I also stay in the shade as much as I can when I'm outside. So that sort of contributes to my lack of sunscreen wearing. Um, and another reason is probably that I just don't love the way it makes my skin feel. It just feels squishy on my skin. And, you know, I'm going to wear it if I go to the beach or I'm going golfing or even skiing. I, I certainly put them on, put on sunscreen. I just could be better at it. So I, I don't really know how you help motivate a person like me to wear sunscreen more often. You know, it's just something I should do. And it's something I encourage all of you to do. Those sunscreen brands, though, they do have a tough task ahead of them. All right, there's another report in an industry magazine called Cosmetic Business that tells about a new ingredient that you might watch out for. You know, CBD was all the rage in skincare, and it still kind of is all the rage, I suppose. Um, well, be on the lookout for the next big wave uh, in skincare, and that would be CBG. You see, CBG is... Cannabigerol, uh, a close cousin to the molecule CBD, which is cannabidiol. And it turns out that there are actually eight cannabinoids uh, that you can get from the cannabis plants. There's the cannabis plants uh, is the family of plants that includes uh, hemp and marijuana plants. Anyway, like CBD, CBG does not get you high. It also doesn't work on the nervous system like CBD theoretically does. Instead, it has a more uh, digestive effect. So you should probably start looking for people advertising CBG in supplement products, uh, you know, uh, diet pills and, uh, and and drinks and that sort of stuff. So what does, does this ingredient do? Uh, you know, honestly, there isn't enough research to say, but that really hasn't stopped marketers from making products with uh, it anyway. You know, CB, CBD, CBG, look for these things. Now, some people will claim that uh, CBG 
can be calming. It has calming effects. And some other people have suggested it has antimicrobial effects. As far as the research goes, there isn't a lot of research, so there isn't a lot of con- good conclusions about it. I think the probably the biggest benefit uh, of CBG oil is going to be to the product marketers who put a tiny amount in their products and then they can make these gigantic claims while selling more and more product. For you beauty customers, eh, it's not really going to do too much, but maybe lighten your wallet. Do people still carry wallets anymore? Everything's digital now, isn't it? All right, before we get onto your questions, I did want to comment on a social media discussion on Twitter that uh, uh, the beauty brains were tagged in. I only mentioned it because I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding of some of the beauty product buying advice that we give, and I just wanted to clarify that. So in this discussion, a user made the claim that she follows the beauty brain's advice and starts with the cheapest brands and then sticks with what works. I was glad to see that because that's pretty pretty much what we suggest. But then that prompted the response to that is... Uh, from a a different user. She says, I love the beauty brains, but I'm not 100% in agreement with this approach. It's more complicated than that, in my opinion. I've seen inexpensive products produced with less than sanitary practices and subpar ingredients for reasons of cost. Sometimes what you get is what you pay for. And then there was the added follow-up, which is, my opinion is that selecting the cheapest product isn't necessarily a good strategy. Now, I know and very much respect the responder. I also don't think that we disagree that much, but I think there is kind of a misunderstanding about the advice that I preach here on the Beauty Brains. First, let's talk about the advice. The Beauty Brains was started with the basic notion that people are spending more on their beauty products than they really need to. Our basic premise is that through education, you can become smarter about your beauty products And what that will help you do is to find products that work the best for you while saving you money. Now, since we know how much it actually costs to make formulas, the types of ingredients that are used and how well they all work, we are in kind of a unique position to enlighten consumers who don't have this information. People have this natural notion that if something costs more, it must be better. And while that may be true in some cases, that is absolutely not true when it comes to beauty products. This doesn't mean that the cheapest products work the best or even that the cheapest products work the same as the most expensive products. But what it does mean is that you as a consumer do not know anything about the quality of the product and how well it's going to work for you just by knowing the price. There are cheap products that are not good, but there are also expensive products that are not good. And on the flip side, there are expensive products that work great, but there are also cheap products that work pretty great. Price does not equal performance. And as an aside, I'd also like to add that just because a product is expensive doesn't mean that the manufacturer didn't skimp on raw material costs or use substandard production techniques. Just because something is expensive doesn't mean that it is high quality. And just because something is cheap doesn't mean that it's poor quality. 
I also want to add the other important fact that how well a product works is a subjective notion. That means some of you will absolutely love products that other people absolutely hate. Some things will work great for you, while other things will work great for other people and just terrible for you. So you can't really tell how well a product is going to work just based on the advice of somebody else or based on price. So that's why when someone asks what is the best product that they should use, it's a nearly impossible question to answer because we do not know enough about you, your skin, or what you like. That's why we avoid giving specific recommendations about products and why we suggest that you have to experiment to find out what works best for you. Now, telling people that they just have to experiment is not exactly a satisfying answer. That's why we came up with the strategy for you to find the best product for you at the most reasonable cost. So an efficient way to find the product that is best, uh, the best value for you, which means that it works well at a low cost, is to start with an inexpensive product. If the least expensive product works for you, then that's what you should use. However, if you try that inexpensive product and you just hate it, which could happen, then I encourage you to move up to the next tier of product costs and try those products out. And if you don't like those products, then you can move a little higher in price until you find a product that works for you. This really is the most efficient way to find the product that is optimized for you. But what that does not mean is that you should just buy the cheapest thing that you can find. Some people might like the VO5 or the Suave shampoos. I mean, these things are cheap and they actually do work. I still use VO5 shampoo, honestly. But a lot of people aren't going to like those products. Uh, they might think that they're too harsh or they don't like the fragrances or the bottles or even they don't like what having a Suave bottle in their bathrooms says about them as a person. You know, uh, when I was working uh, in the shampoo um brand vo5 we would do these consumer research studies and we'd go into people's houses and we'd look in their bathrooms and see what products they were using some people would report that they would buy a nice expensive product kerastase or something like that and then when they get to the end of the bottle they would go buy vo5 or suave and they would just fill that bottle back up with a cheaper shampoo that way they have in their bathroom they still have the the expensive bottle but they're not spending as much money on it. So how you like a product or, uh, uh, or how what you think the brand says about you is another factor you have to consider. So I just wanted to clarify that here on the Beauty Brains, we are not just telling you to go buy the cheapest product. What we are telling you is that you need to experiment with products to find out what works best for you. And a good way to start that experiment is to begin with the least expensive products. Then you move up in price until you find a product that you're happy to just stick with. All right, how about we move on to some beauty product questions? You know, normally when Valerie is here, we thoroughly research the answers and we write up a script and then we banter a bit about it if we have any dis disagreements. But since it's just me here today, I'm just going to go a little bit more off the cuff and just answer a lot of these just off the top of my head. That way I can quickly get through a bunch of questions that have been sent in uh, in the past uh, months or years and uh, we have just have not got a chance to answer them because they take too much of a deep dive for a two-person show. 
All right, so let's begin with the first question. It's an audio question. This one comes to us from Kelsey. Hi, Beauty Brains. I love your show, and I really appreciate you dedicating your time to answering all these consumer questions. Your responses have inspired me to cut back on my high-end cosmetic purchases and look for more reasonable, budget-friendly options. That being said, my question is specifically about the Skin Care Compare tool from The Skin School, S-K-O-O-L. SkinSchoolBeauty.com has something called the Dupe Finder. It's described as the world's first ingredient-based product discovery algorithm developed by a biochemist and a software engineer. Apparently, the algorithm automates which products are most similar and compares them on a scale of 0 to 100%. So I'm wondering, is this dupe finder reliable? And I understand that products could still vary by texture, color, scent, but can I really expect similar results from products with a high match score? Thanks, Beauty Brains. Thanks for that question, Kelsey. I looked at the website, and it seems they have this algorithm that compares the ingredient list of products, right? And then they kind of tell you how closely the other products match, I guess, in terms of ingredients. So in general, the system seems to work. I mean, all you have to do is collect a database of all the products on the market and get their ingredient list, and then you can have a computer go through, and I think they do the extra step of comparing, or, or of classifying ingredients that are similar. For example, uh, glycerin and sodium PCA are both humectants, or glycerin and propylene glycol are both humectants, and so they would sort of group those together. So um, that, I think that's how they come up with this. So in general, the the system does seem to work, I guess. And and in theory, uh, it does make sense that if you take a product that's on the market and you look at the first five ingredients or so, and if the first five ingredients are the same in the same order, you can be pretty confident that the products will work, you know, relatively the same as each other. Although there's a big caveat on that, and that is to say there are other factors beyond just the specific ingredients used that this algorithm doesn't isn't able to do. So first, the, the biggest one first is they don't know the exact amount in the formula. So just because an ingredient is listed on an ingredient list, that doesn't mean that co two companies are using the same amounts of that ingredient. So where it is on the list can matter. However, where it is on the list also can be misleading in that uh, if an ingredient is not used in the formula at a level above 1% concentration, then they can list it in any order below the 1% line. So that's why the advice is the first few ingredients, first five is just an estimate. It could be the first ingredient. And there's a 1% line in which above that, you have to list the ingredients in order. And below that line, you can list them in any order that you like. And so one of the tricks that marketers will do is they'll put a low level of, say, a vitamin in the product, and they know that consumers believe that the lower it is on the ingredient list, the less there is of it. And so what they'll do is they'll put it in at, say, 0.01%, and then they put that ingredient ahead of all of the other ingredients that are in a level of 1% or below. That way, it looks like there's more in there than there isn't. This algorithm has no way of knowing 
whether the company is doing that or not. And so in that way, it becomes a little bit uh, inaccurate. They also don't, uh, this this AI is not going to be able to tell you whether you're going to like that fragrance or not. And one of the big reasons that people like cosmetic products is because they like how it smells and they like how it feels. This algorithm is not, or this AI, this skin school beauty AI, is not going to be able to tell you if you're going to like the way that the product feels. And a lot of buying beauty products is based on how they smell and feel because that's you want to use them more. Another thing that you should consider is that the way they get this data. I remember there was a, a site called drugstore.com, and I used to use that all the time to look at ingredient lists. The problem was that sometimes those ingredient lists were not correct. I know the Suave Shampoo was one that I looked at because I was working on the shampoo project, and I knew they didn't have the right ingredient list because I, I don't know why there was. There was just there was just an error in there because the bottle that I got did not match what the website says. So one of the inherent problems with this AI is that it might have incorrect information about a product. Also, you know, when you're doing a new production run, you might have to modify the ingredient list name. So that will be a challenge in using this. They might not be completely accurate. One of the things that I want to point out is that um, you have to look at why uh, why this website put together this tool. And maybe they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. And, and yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool tool to be able to compare all of these uh, ingredient lists. But you should also ask yourself, what are they getting out of this tool? And one of the things that you realize that they're getting out of it is that they have on their website affiliate links and advertisers. Now, I have no problem with affiliate links or advertisers. Uh, in fact, the Beauty Brains uh, in our day has has used affiliate links and advertisers to uh, to fund the website. So that is a way that publishers make money. So this particular tool is using... Uh, that information, when you put in a product and you're asked what's a duplicate, the suggestions that they give will give you links to Amazon. And then if you click on that link and buy it through Amazon, then they get a, a commission based on that. So it, the affiliate link. So that's the way this website and this tool is making money. So if you consider that, they do have some incentive to steer you towards higher price products. I mean, the commissions might not be that much different, but if they're selling thousands and thousands of products, you could see a tiny nudge in their algorithm to say, okay, here's this product. Let's let's steer somebody towards this other product and say it's more alike, but it's more expensive. Uh, that could be a bias that you really should consider when using this. But I will say they do seem to compare the ingredients and some of the products that I looked up and compared, they seemed reasonable uh, duplicates or reasonable alternatives to me. Uh, so yeah, their advice may work for you and it may help to save you some money. All right, let's go to the next question. Schlippa says, I read online that certain actives should not be used together, specifically vitamin C and niacinamide. I read that the vitamin C reacts with the niacinamide and inactivates the niacinamide. Is that true? And if so, should I apply niacinamide creams at night in rotation with my retinoids? Can they be applied together or do they react together too? 
All right. Nice question. I've actually seen this question a few times, so finally getting to it. First, let's talk about these ingredients and why they're used in skin products. Niacinamide is a version of vitamin B3, niacin, which can brighten the complexion, erase wrinkles, reduce transepidermal water loss, improves elasticity, and fights inflammation. Actually, uh, Procter & Gamble loves niacinamide. They put it in all of their Olay products, and they have a lot of evidence, in their minds anyway, that it's a great ingredient to use. And I have no reason to say niacinamide is, is not uh, a, fine, a perfectly fine ingredient to use. Now let's talk about vitamin C. This is a biologically active form of ascorbic acid. In the body, vitamin C is a potent antioxidant, which neutralizes damaging free radicals and shows potential for some skin lightening. Commonly used versions of this compound are ascorbyl palmitate, magnesium ascorbyl phosphate, and trisodium ascorbyl phosphate. We've talked about vitamin C in previous episodes. Now, about combining them into a single product, though, generally vitamin C needs to be used at a low pH to be most effective, while niacinamide works better at higher or neutral pHs. So there can actually be a problem if the pH isn't optimized. Now, as far as the problem of layering or some sort of reaction, there really isn't a problem that you have to worry about with that. Now, there was some research done in the 1960s that had shown a negative interaction between niacinamide and ascorbic acid. They can potentially react to produce a nicotinic acid, uh, which can cause redness and itching. However, that study used pure ascorbic acid and niacinamide held at high temperatures together. It's unlikely that that kind of reaction is going to happen uh, in products that are produced by modern day formulations and stored at room temperature. I do not think that there's any evidence that that's a thing you need to worry about. So are there any benefits to combining them? You know, they would be beneficial together in that you could get multiple effects from a single product. Niacinamide and vitamin C kind of fight different problems related to skin aging. So combining them, you know, could help with like skin lightening theoretically as they work in different ways to achieve that effect. I will say though that an individual results are going to vary with any active ingredients and these two are no exceptions. You only know the true effect uh, that they're going to have on your skin after you've tried the product on your own skin. It may work great for some people, not so great for other people, but most likely you're going to be somewhere in between. And some people may experience a negative skin reaction. So if you do, then you probably don't want to use a product with those combined. You could apply your niacinamide creams at night and in rotation with your retinoids, but I, it's, it's probably not going to make much difference. Question three comes to us from Paige. Paige asks, is there a difference between an antioxidant serum marketed for blue light and a good antioxidant serum? Are these products actually beneficial or what are their shortcomings? This will be quick. There is not really a formulation difference. You know, they pretty much are using standard anti-aging ingredients like peptides, humectants, niacinamide. Uh, but there isn't really any ingredient that you can formulate with that is going to have a measurable impact on the effect or the lack thereof uh, that blue light might have on your skin. The products are beneficial in the way that moisturizers are beneficial, but there is nothing in them that is going to make them measurably protecting you against the effect of blue light on your skin. 
actually the effect of blue light on your skin is debatable anyway uh, the amounts that we get normally anyway there's of course doctors can use blue lights for treatments but say but the stuff you get from your phone or from your tv uh, that's not having a huge impact on your skin and you do not need products to protect you from it all right, next quick question. Uh, Mishu asks, is there no plant extract worth harvesting and using in skincare? Is synthetic always better? Now, being a formulator and hanging out in formulation forums and discussion areas on the internet, I frequently see this idea that people want to make their own plant extracts or they want to buy plant extracts and then add them to their skin products. In fact, there's this whole DIY movement online and... I have to say, there's lots of bad advice. There are two parts of the answer to the first question, whether any plant extract is worth using. That is, do any plant extracts work, and should you harvest them and make them yourself? So to the question of whether any plant extract works to provide benefits to your skin, as a consumer, you need to know upfront that while cosmetic marketers frequently advertise on their bottles that they're there are plant extracts in their products. The reality is that only a tiny amount of the extract is typically used. So the formulators and marketers of the products don't expect those extracts to actually have any measurable impact on how the product works. They are actually what we call claims ingredients in the business, and they're put in there just to help tell the story. They don't make the products work. But all of these stories are rooted in some bit of truth. For example, lemons and grapefruits do contain vitamin C. So if you take a fruit like that and you squeeze it onto your skin, you are actually going to get a small amount of vitamin C. Okay, I want you to think about this. Think about a grapefruit and imagine that you squeezed the entire thing, all the juice out, and then you put that on your skin. I want you to just consider how much vitamin C is getting put on my skin. Now, this is as pure and stable vitamin C as you're going to get. How much are you going to get? Well, the reality is that you're going to get 0.06%. Now, that's a taking one whole grapefruit, you get 0.06% uh, vitamin C. Now, whether that's enough to have a significant impact on your skin, well, that's debatable, but you should compare that to a product like the Ordinary Cells. Uh, they, they have a serum that delivers supposedly 8% vitamin C, so almost uh, 10, 100 times, more than 100 times more uh, than you get just from a single grapefruit. So the bottom line is that's going to take a lot of grapefruits to show benefits from vitamin C over the Ordinary product. Now, there are lots of plants out there that have some benefits. Aloe juice certainly has moisturizing benefits. And in an article titled Botanicals in Dermatology, an evidence-based review published in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, they point out benefits for a few plant extracts such as tea tree oil in a fight for acne, glyceriza, which is derived from licorice, and that's as a treatment for atopic dermatitis, mahonia, and capsicum is used for psoriasis. Of course, there there is just directional evidence for these products working. It hasn't reached the level of these things being so proven that they get prescribed as treatments, but they might work. And this is the case for most of these plant extracts. Yes, plants have some ingredients in them that can provide benefits, but 
synthetic cosmetics are just able to deliver a much higher, more effective dosage. Now, as to the question of whether you should grow and make your own plant extracts, while it might be feasible for you to grow your own plant and then even get them into the extract form, the amount that you're going to get is really just tiny, and the effect that you're going to get in your skincare products is really negligible. It would be a ton of work for a very little benefit. Now, considering both of those facts, I really don't believe that it is worth it to plant, harvest, and distill your own extracts. Now, if there is some skin problem that you're trying to solve for an effective solution, you're just not going to be able to make a product that works better than the things that are made with synthetic ingredients that you can just go buy in a store. Now, if you're looking for a fun hobby and you want to grow plants and make your own extracts, that's a perfectly fine thing to do, and it may even be fun and rewarding. You, you just shouldn't expect that uh, doing this is going to help solve any of your skin problems. Now, finally, to the question of whether synthetic is always better than natural, well, that really depends on your goal. If your goal is to treat a skin condition and make it look and feel better, then synthetically produced cosmetics are just going to work better. If your goal is to get someone to buy your cosmetic product instead of a competitor's, then natural options can work pretty well for that. Next question, Allison asks, am I better off using good old-fashioned petrolatum and glycerin on my face? Is hyaluronic acid just a fad? Yeah, glycerin is the most effective humectant in terms of real-world performance. You know, hyaluronic acid just makes a much better story. You know, I think it is just kind of a fad right now, uh, although this is an ingredient that does work, and it's going to stick around. I mean, it's part of the natural moisturizing factor your body naturally produces, so uh, people are going to be selling hyaluronic acid products uh, for a long time. I just don't think that products with hyaluronic acid are going to work better than ones with plain old glycerin. I mean, it's a lot harder to just market products that just use glycerin because you know, everybody can do it, although everyone can use hyaluronic acid now too. But this is exactly why, you know, I'm not in the beauty product selling business. <laughs> I'm a terrible salesperson for these things. I mean, if you're using a product with petrolatum and glycerin, you really aren't going to be able to do much better in terms of performance. Question six. Julia says, what's up with prostaglandins used in eyelash serums? My understanding is that they are similar to ingredients in prescription medications in effectiveness and potential side effects, but do not require the labeling or testing required for drugs. What gives? Well, Julia, actually, we've talked about uh, these eyelash products well, a few times here on the Beauty Brains. And in fact, one of our early popular blog posts was on the Jan Marini eyelash serum. The bottom line on this is, yes, there are companies that are producing um, prostaglandin-containing eyelash serums, or they'll do prostaglandin analogs, so it's not exactly the, the drug. The bottom line is that um, these products that were found, uh, actually what happened was there was a treatment for glaucoma that used these prostaglandins, and one of the side effects that they noticed with this drug was that it was making the people's eyelashes grow better. And so the pharmaceutical company that produced the drug started to do some research in creating a eyelash serum. 
And that actually eventually turned into a product called Latisse, which you can get with prescription. And it actually does work to uh, uh, make your eyelashes grow more. Uh, it also has some side effects, like it can change the color of your eyes, which you might not like. So that is something to consider. But what happened was before Latisse came out, there were a number of people who got tipped off that this prostaglandins were having this side effect and they created products. First, some of the products were created uh, with the prostaglandin that was ultimately uh, patented for the Latisse product. And I think Jan Marini was one of the early brands that did this. But then there were other brands that took uh, molecules that were like the prostaglandin and they put that in there and they may have still fit into the right spots. Uh, it was It's an enzyme that, that fit into the right spot that stimulated hair growth. And so these products uh, could be pseudo drugs. As long as they're making cosmetic claims, they were trying to stay out of uh, the regulator's way. Unfortunately for some of these brands, uh, you know, the FDA eventually got wind of this and uh, those companies that were using prostaglandins to actually affect the growth of your eyelashes, uh, some of them were, were shut down and a lot of them moved on to uh, what they just deemed uh, technology that was different and different enough not to step on the toes of the patent holders of the Latisse brand. Anyway, you know, if these products really worked to lengthen your eyelashes, that would make them drugs. And if they weren't using uh, the actives uh, that were approved, uh, then they would be illegal products. Most of the time, what these things, what these products do, they're good eyelash. Uh, they, they, they help to coat the eyelashes. They don't actually affect the hair growth, they just make claims that imply that. And so that is to say, none of these products are actually legally making your eyelashes grow with the exception of Latisse, which is an approved drug here in the United States. Question seven, Teresa asks, are commercially available retinol creams like La Roche-Posse, Redermic R intense with 0.3% retinol, just as strong as the prescription triretinin of 0.25% or 0.3%. What is the difference? Uh, the difference is one of these is a proven drug that you can get a prescription for. That's tretinoin. Uh, the other one is a cosmetic uh, that you don't need a prescription for. And you can get that uh, just at the drugstore or wherever you get products. The bottom line is the tretinoin is actually uh, an effective proven drug product. And it's going to give you, it's going to work. The retinol might give you some benefits, but it's certainly got not going to work as well. And that's the main difference. If if retinol worked as well as tretinoin, uh, then it would be an illegal drug or it would have been uh, put on the OTC monograph uh, for uh, that with tretinoin. So the bottom line is uh, the tretinoin product at 0.25% is working better than the retinol. Question eight, Tina says, this is the ingredient list that Monat uses, does not use on their products. They say no parabens, no SLS, SLES, no cyclic silicones, no BH2, no DEA, MEA, no phthalates, no phenoxyethanol, no petrolatum, mineral oil, or paraffin wax, no triclosan, no plastic microbes, and no formaldehyde releasers. Can you explain in layman's term what they are or do and if they're actually harmful? Or is this more fear-based marketing? The quick answer is yes, this is fear-based marketing. Any time that a company is telling you what is not in their products, 
that is simply fear marketing to say that there is no SLS or SLES. They are relying you uh, on you to have got the idea that sulfates are somehow bad for your hair or bad for you. It's not true. They can be used perfectly fine in products, but that is out there. And so in a way to scare you and get you to buy their products, uh, they tell you they don't use SLS. Similarly, parabens, they know consumers are afraid of parabens, and so they're going to make it a point to tell you that they don't use parabens, which does imply that all those brands that do use parabens are somehow icky. And this is total fear marketing. Anytime you see someone saying, know this, know that, unless they're specifically targeting people who have allergies, for example, you'll see no gluten, uh, and these are for people who are, you know, they have celiac disease and they're worried about uh, they can have an actual reaction to it. No one is going to use a paraben containing cosmetic and notice any negative effect. That is unless you're specifically uh, allergic to uh, parabens, which some tiny, tiny percentage of the population might have a reaction to that. Although almost nobody has reaction to that. Uh, the bottom line is all of the, whenever you see no, your your product doesn't contain this thing, it's fear marketing, which always, it does amuse me that why haven't they said, uh, I don't know, no cyanide or no, uh, no plutonium or no uranium. Um, they don't contain that either, but they don't call that out. And those things are scary. I don't know. <laughs> you could make a big long list of stuff that they don't contain. All right, looks like I have time for one more question. I probably probably could have cut this show in half, but what the heck? I'm, I was on a roll. Here we go. So finally, here's one from Kimberly from Instagram. She says, what is the difference between medical-grade skincare and OTC skincare? I've heard so many so-called experts say non-medical-grade skincare does nothing but makes your skin feel nice. And who doesn't want their skin to feel nice? Isn't that the whole point of this? Look and feel nice. All right, <laughs> that's just an aside. Let me get into this question. First of all, you might not be using the term exactly in the same way that I would use it. So let me first say what OTC is. OTC stands for over-the-counter drug, and it's actually a, a term in the United States used to refer to products that have drug actives in that, but you can still buy them at the store. So OTC skincare, these products will use proven actives to treat conditions like acne, psoriasis, uh, eczema. Um, the ingredients and the claims are regulated by the FDA, at least in the United States. And there's a thing called a monograph and you have to use the ingredients listed in that monograph, and you can only make the claims that are listed in the monograph. And so everybody is sort of on the same playing field. These are the most regulated cosmetic type products on the market in the United States, and they actually are proven to work. That's why the FDA gives their imprimatur to uh, verify these products. Now, if you're just referring to any product that you can just buy over the counter in a drug or grocery store, then perhaps you don't mean OTC, you just mean drugstore brands. These are different. I mean, they're not OTC and they cannot by law treat diseases. They are classified as cosmetics and they're only allowed to improve the appearance uh, or the uh, feel of skin and hair. And maybe that's where this notion comes that uh, 
drugstore brands cannot really uh, affect the met- metabolic pathways and the biochemistry of your skin. They can only a- affect the feel and the look and appearance of your uh, skin and hair. So that is true. But medical grade skincare, this is just a marketing position with no legal meaning. Anybody can call what they want medical grade. It it does not refer to things that only dermatologists can prescribe. It generally refers to standard cosmetic products that are maybe sold by dermatologists or maybe they use a dermatologist's name. Or maybe it's just a marketing position that someone came up with and said, oh, let's just call this medical grade. It really has no specific legal meaning. And if I wanted to start a brand right now in my kitchen, would not be good at it. But if I wanted to, I could make the product. And if the marketing position I wanted to say is, oh, this is medical grade, there's nothing stopping me legally from doing that. I can define that however I want. The reality is that these products do not have any special technology that allows them to work better or treat diseases than any other cosmetic skincare brand. It's really just a marketing position. That's really all it is. Woo! All right, that brings us to the end of this show. Thanks so much for listening. Next week, uh, Valerie will be back. And if you get a chance, please go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Incidentally, if you want to get your question answers, just the best way is to record your question on your smartphone and then email that file to us at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. You can also do it the old-fashioned way of sending us a, a text email, uh, that, uh, but we, we answer, we do prefer to answer the uh, audio questions. Also, you can follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains, and we have a Facebook page. One other thing, the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This will help keep the show ad-free and is the best way to keep the financial bias out of our show. So if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again so much for listening, and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Cue the cats. Get in.